This year our theme is living an abundant life. Certainly we look forward to an eternal life. It'll be beyond anything that we can hope or imagine. Uh, but Jesus also wants to bless us during this life. And that's what we're talking about this year is how to live an abundant life here on earth. Some of you are moving in that direction. Uh, you ask me how I know that. Well, I can see it in some of you. Uh, some of you have talked to me about it. Some of you have emailed me about it. Some of you are getting the concept uh, that you can live an abundant life and you've set your mind to go that direction. Our theme verse this year is, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. That's Jesus' own words and why he came to earth. Yes, he wants us to have eternal life, but he also talks about a rich, full, overflowing quality of life, and a life that is not empty like many people in the world live. He said, I am come that they might have a life that's more abundant. Our mental picture for this year, since we're Kansans, is an abundant harvest. Uh, we made that correlation last week, and we're going to kind of use that theme as we go through the year to help us remember where we are. Our plan to get to the abundant life is just exactly the same process that a farmer would use to get to an overflowing grain bin. Uh, the first step is clearing the field. There are things in a farmer's field that have to be gotten rid of before he can have an abundant harvest. Otherwise, they'll choke out the harvest. They'll destroy it. They'll ruin it. And so we've got to clear the field, not of weeds and bugs, but worse things, uh, sin and guilt and worry and other noxious weeds that choke out the abundant life. So we're going to work on clearing the field. Uh, after that, then we must plant and fertilize the proper things. There are things that have to go into the field, uh, habits and practices and attitudes and behaviors uh, that the expert recommends for the abundant life. So we'll have to plant those things, and we'll talk about those for a while. And finally, if we've done that right, we will realize the harvest, and we'll have some sermons about what an abundant life looks like. Now, what's an abundant life family look like? What's a marriage look like? What's um, all, all of that, we'll talk about the harvest to some degree. All right, for the next few weeks, we're going to concentrate on getting the bad things out, clearing the field. It's where we have to start. Not the most pleasant place to start. Uh, it'd be more fun to talk about the abundant life, but can't get there without clearing the field first. So we'll start there. Uh, today, the obvious place to start is sin. And I say it's obvious because you all know that. Uh, you can spot it in others. You look at other people's lives who are living a miserable, less than abundant life, and you can say, I know what their problem is. It's sin. Uh, they have this sin in their life that's just ruining things. Like I said, we can spot that in others. But... Sometimes we leave sin in our lives. Uh, we leave sin in our lives, and then we sit around and wonder, why am I not having an abundant life? I don't know why we have that vision problem where we can see so clearly in others, but not ourselves. We're, now, let me make sure you understand what I'm talking about. We're all sinners. I know that. And we all sin. We sin out of ignorance. We sin out of weakness. We make mistakes. I understand that. But some in here. And I fear maybe 
more than just some, have willful sin in their life, have habitual sin that is undealt with and maybe covered up, and it's stealing your abundant life. That's what the thief does. Remember from last week, the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. And if he can get sin in your life, get you to live with that unconfessed, undealt with, unresolved sin, then he can destroy your abundant life. Only you know that. I can't tell. But I believe there are some in here that may have that problem. So let's start our work today with a conscience check. Conscience is a powerful thing. And let's look at two examples of conscience. In Psalm chapter 38... The psalmist, who, remember, was David and had horrible sin in his life, uh, until the prophet came to him and confronted him, he wouldn't admit it. He kept it hidden. He wouldn't admit that there was a problem in his life. And so he wrote this and other psalms about how that was when he had that problem. Listen to what he says, starting verse 3. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. My bones have no soundness because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. Verse 8, I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of heart. That's a guilty conscience, folks. David had sin in his life. Everybody knew it, but he wouldn't admit it. He just carried on like he was king, and it didn't matter. And he tells what it was really like in his conscience. He had a guilty conscience. Contrast that with what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians verse chapter 1 and verse 12. He said when he wrote back to the Corinthian church, he said, Our conscience, me and my fellow workers, our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have not done so according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. The Apostle Paul had a clear conscience. Quite a contrast, isn't it? I ask you to make a conscience check this morning. Which side are you on, guilty or clear? David or Paul. Now, let's talk about sin, but first there's a story you need to know whether you're in Bible bowl or not. It's in 1 Samuel 15, and we'll get to the story in just a minute, but let's talk about the background a little bit because the Amalekites, we have to understand them. Got to understand what a mess they were. Amalek was a son uh, by a concubine of Esau. Jacob and Esau, you remember those, and just like Ishmael and uh, Israel fought all their life. Uh, Amalek caused problems for the people of Israel all through the generations. Uh, his children, children of Amalek, became nomads. They were warriors. They were a vicious bunch of folks. They lived in southern Canaan. The first time we read about them is when the Israelites got out of Israel, uh, out of Egypt. They left Egypt. They were on the Exodus. They were traveling through, and they got to Rephidim. And Amalek attacked them. The Amalekites came out and attacked the people of Israel who were exiting Egypt. That's the famous battle where Aaron and Hur held up Moses' hands. 
Uh, kind of a strange thing, but as long as Moses held his hands up over the battle, the Israelites won. When his hands would get tired and he'd let them down, they'd begin to lose. So Aaron and Hur held his hands up. Good picture for us. But he did that, and they defeated the Amalekites. Didn't destroy them utterly. They just defeated the army that day. After that battle, listen to what God said in Exodus seventeen fourteen. The Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. That's kind of a strange thing. After a victorious battle, God said, Now you write this down. And you remember this. I am going to destroy Amalek. That just seems kind of out of place there for some reason, but that's what he said. Next time we read about the Amalekites is when the spies got ready to go into Canaan. They had wanted, they were ready to go into the promised land. God said, I have given it to you. It's yours. Just march in and I'll help you defeat anybody that messes with you. The people, though, said, well, we better check it out. So they sent some spies, 12 spies, if you remember. Ten of them went in and came out fearful. Who were they fearful of? Among the things that scared them to death were the Amalekites. They saw this vicious, warlike people, and they said, "Uh, we can't handle that. We don't want to go. They were afraid to go into the land that God had given them. The next thing we hear about the Amalekites is in a real strange place. It's in the middle of the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 17, I believe it begins, in the middle of the law, just out of nowhere... He's talking about all kinds of other sanitary things and all that. Out of the middle of nowhere, God says this to Moses. He said, remember what the Amalekites did to you on the way when you came out of Egypt? And here's where we start to learn why the Amalekites were so bad. Do you remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt? When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of the Lord. When the Lord gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land, he is going to give you to possess as an inheritance. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. What the Amalekites done? They saw the Israelites passing by on the Exodus on their way out of Egypt. They waited behind, they attacked from the rear, they cut off all the weak and weary. Who would that be? It would be children, pregnant women, sick ones, old ones. They captured and killed them, they took all their possessions, they attacked from the rear. And God said from then on, I'm going to destroy them. And so he said in the middle of the law, he said, you destroy them when you get in there. Well, they didn't. So what's the problem with that? Well, we keep reading. We get to the Judges. Judges chapter 6 and verse 3, right in the paragraph about Gideon, it says, Whenever Israel planted crops, the Amalekites invaded. It says they came in and they camped in the land and they ruined the crops and they were like a swarm of locusts and they took all the sheep and the cattle and they did this every year and they impoverished the people of God. That's all happened before this. Now we get to the period of the kings. And Saul's in charge. Now bear in mind, we've gone through all these steps. 
We didn't destroy the Amalekites. We let them live. God has sworn that he's going to destroy them. He's told them, don't forget. Remember, you got to destroy them. You got to get them out of there. They haven't done it yet. So now he sends Samuel to see Saul. And so we read in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel said to Saul, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go. Attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Don't spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Slaughter them. Sounds kind of harsh, but God knew what he was doing. Then Saul attacked, verse 7. He took a, uh, he attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs. Everything that was good, they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. He said, Samuel, here's what Saul did. Go talk to him. So Samuel goes and talks to him. Verse 13, when Samuel reached him... Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. uh, Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? And Saul starts to make excuses. Well, the people kept them. He even comes flat out and just denies it. He said, I did obey the Lord. Saul argues with Samuel. He said, I did obey the Lord. I'm ready to do sacrifices and all that. I haven't done anything wrong. Verse 26, Samuel says, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. That was the end of Saul. That was when the sentence was pronounced that he wasn't going to be king anymore. And David was to replace him. Then Samuel said, bring me. King Agag. Agag came to him confidently. Agag thought he had it made. Agag thought he was going to be all right with his prophet. He figured the death sentence was over. He said, surely the bitterness of death is past. We can get along, can't we, Samuel? Samuel, kind of poetic, says, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. The prophet of the Lord asked for a sword. I don't think he carried one. I don't know. He asked for a sword. Maybe he took Saul's own sword. And he hacked Agag to pieces. The NIV is a little more polite. It says he put Agag to death. The old King James says he hewed Agag. New King James got it real good. He hacked Agag to pieces. I don't know how many pieces he cut him in, but he hacked him up. He got rid of him. And, and we're sitting here thinking, how does a prophet of God do this? Why would a prophet of God kill anybody, much less hack them to pieces? Well, I'll tell you why he did it, because God said to He did it because God had been saying for hundreds of years, you kill him. You get rid of them. You get them out. 
you destroy every one of them, I will wipe them off the face of the earth. This wasn't a soldier doing this, it was a priest. He was doing it because God told him to. He did it because Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Saul had not done it. And Samuel says, it's time to take care of business. Always before, throughout the history, they always were a few left. They let a few escape. There were a few got away. They let some survive. And we get clear down to Saul, and Saul says, eh, one will be all right. I'll just keep one around. Probably because of his pride. He could show him off. Look what I captured. Look at me. I'm King Saul. I got the great Agag here. But he kept one, said he can't hurt too much. All right, that's the story. Now let's, let's apply the story to the clearing of the field of sin. Uh, at baptism, we're saved from the penalty of sin. We've been through that in Romans. I hope you all got that. We're freed from the mastery of sin. But we still battle the temptation of sin in the flesh. That's what Romans taught us. There's still this temptation through the flesh against our inner man that we have to deal with. So Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That sin problem that comes through the flesh, Paul's advice, Paul's command is you put it to death. Can't do that halfway. Can't do that partially. Can't just fiddle around and let some of them live and kill some of the others. He says, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Paul gives us the full prescription in Romans 8.13. He says, if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Holy Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. If you live, he says, this is characteristic of somebody who's living in the light, living in the spirit, living in Christ, is they are continually killing sin, continually putting to death sin. You can't tame the flesh, folks. Satan will find new ways to mess with you. So you got to put it to death. You got to continually put it to death. You can't tame the flesh. You can't make it a house pet like Saul wanted to make Agag. You can't say, well, there's only a few sins, and I'll let some of them run around in my life, and they surely won't hurt anything. you got to put them to death. you got to hack them to pieces. We are not promised freedom from sin's harassment. Sin's going to harass us. Not promised that. We're not told, well, you just sit back and you let go and let God and he'll take care of these things. The world says that a lot, don't they? You got a sin problem, well, just let go and let God. Paul's a little more succinct. He says you put them to death. We're not told that there's going to be some magic appearance of holiness if we just reconsecrate ourselves once. Even if we walk down the aisle, say I want sin out of my life. That doesn't fix it the next day. It helps. It gets people to understand what's going on and they, they can help you and all that. But you are still told to put to death. We're told to be constantly killing sinful things in our life. Add godly things to your life. Get rid of ungodly things. That's pretty well the prescription. So 
Every day that you live, you've got two choices. Saul, Samuel. That's your two choices. You can pick and say, I'm going to act like Saul. I'm going to be like Saul. I'm kind of king of things around here, and I can't get rid of all of them. I want to keep one. I want to keep a couple of them. It won't hurt anything. It'll be all right. I'm tough enough. I can keep him chained up over there and enjoy him when I want to. Or you can choose, I'm going to be like Samuel. Show me my Amalekites. Bring me my Agag. And now give me a sword, and I'm going to hack him to pieces. That's what Samuel did. You can choose to be like that in your daily life as you clear the field. Now, if you choose Samuel, here's some good news for you. I mean, I could stop the sermon right there. That's the fact. You've got to put to death sin. Okay? But here's the good news. We're going to go a little further. When God tells us to do something, he doesn't just walk away and leave us. He always tells us how, and he always empowers us to do it. Okay? Remember the, the, the crippled guys that he healed? He told them to stood up, to stand up. That was how. And he empowered them to do it. Well, he tells us to put to death sin. He tells us how in his book. He gives us the power to do it. This book is a very practical how-to guide. And we'll get into more of the how-tos when we get into the planting and fertilizing. But i got to give you a little bit of it today so you can understand how to put to death sin in your life. So let's see how. Uh, the biggest mistake we can make before we get into the real practical stuff, the biggest, one of the big mistakes we can make is to think that it's an external battle. Sometimes we convince ourselves it's an external battle. So we make a list of rules. Uh, churches do that sometimes. They say if you don't do this and you don't do this one and you don't do that one, then you got sin whipped. You're okay. You're acceptable if you just don't do this one or that one or the other one. And through the years, through the centuries, people have been trying that. That's what legalism is. Make a list of rules and make sure you don't violate these. That's what Phariseeism is. Keep these little bitty rules, but don't worry about what's inside and what the real problem is. That's what asceticism is. That's what monastic system is. It's what celibacy is all about. That's what self-flagellation is about. Uh, There's people through the centuries that think if you beat yourself up enough, you can get rid of sin in your life somehow. That's thinking that it's a physical deal. It's not a physical deal. It's a spiritual battle. We, We fight this inside. Back to Romans again. It's a spiritual battle. Remember our first sermon this year? It's all in your head. That's where it starts. You gotta win this spiritual battle. Okay, so as long as we understand that, let's see if we can win this battle. Uh, We're going to look at a real practical how-to plan. And let me tell you three things about this plan. Number one, it's going to be quick. We're blowing through this quick. It's mainly there for you to take home and start to work on. You can read all the scriptures and think about it, but I'm going to just tell you about it real quickly. Second, it's backwards. It'll seem real strange to you when we start, but it will work. And number three, it's guaranteed guaranteed practical how-to plan on how to put sin to death in your life. All right, let's start at the bottom. Number six, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 says, Abstain 
from sinful desires or fleshly lusts. Whichever translation you got, sinful desires, fleshly lusts. That's where the problem starts. James chapter 1, verse 13, says we're tempted. When are we tempted? When our own evil desire, a fleshly lust, drag us away. And if they conceive, then they give birth to sin. There's the step. We're tempted because of that evil desire. My evil desire isn't the same as yours. We all got different things that bother us. Satan knows us. Satan works us. He knows what bothers you. He knows what bothers me. So that's our own evil desire. Did you notice Peter does not give a real complex therapy plan? He says, abstain. He says, stop. He says, quit. Dealing with fleshly lust. Quit dealing with sinful desires. I told you it was backwards. At this point, that sounds really hard, doesn't it? Well, I mean, it sounds easy for your sins. That's my advice to you. You just stop. You you just quit dealing with those evil desires. But mine? Whoa, that's hard. How do you just stop? I mean, they're evil desires. They're problems. How do I just quit? Well, let's go on. Number five. Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for these fleshly desires. The NIV says, don't think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. What he's saying is don't accommodate them. Don't feed them. Don't give them situations where they can attack you. We understand that. If your problem is gluttony, it's not good to go to the grocery store with a pocket full of money, hungry, and alone. That's not good. That is making provisions for your evil desires. Okay? If sex is your problem, don't go to those kind of movies. That stir up the sinful desires. Don't read those kind of books. Don't watch those kind of TV shows. Don't get on those internet sites. Make no provision for them. Starve them out. Get them out. If gossip is your problem, and you have a weekly lunch date with your favorite friend who supplies the juiciest news, then you don't go to lunch with her anymore. Starve it out. Don't make provision For where your evil desire problem is. Number four. The A part of Romans 13, 14 says, Clothe yourselves with Christ. Pursue Christ-likeness. I know WWJD, what would Jesus do, is kind of a trite cliche these days. But guess what? It works. Ask yourself, what would Jesus do in this situation? Try to clothe yourself with Christ. Try to start looking more Christ-like works everywhere else. How about athletics? See any kids running around in stars jerseys? Yeah, they got a favorite team. They got a favorite player. They want to be like them. So what do they do? They watch all the games. They study every move. They put the jerseys on. They may even get the haircut like them. Unfortunately, they may even get a tattoo like them. They want to look as much like them as possible. We understand that there, don't we? Well, 
Paul said in Romans, clothe yourselves with Christ. Try to look as much like him as you can. Number three, Psalm 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin. That's a good one. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin. Meditate on God's word. Put it in your heart. Put it in your mind. You may stop at this point and ask, hold it now. How's, how's memorizing a verse going to help me? How's letting the word of Christ dwell in me richly? How's that going to help? Let me give you just one little tip here if you haven't figured it out. This is a sword. This is the sword of the Spirit. And I want to tell you something. If you are going to hack something up, you need a sword. And if you're going to hack up something spiritual, if you're going to get spiritual noxious weeds out of the field of your heart, you need the sword of the Spirit. Hey, you can try to do it with human power if you want to, but you need the sword of the Spirit. So meditate on God's Word. Put it in your heart. Number two, pray. Pray? Yeah. Look at some prayers. Matthew 6, 13. What did Jesus teach us to pray? Lead us not into temptation. Now that sounds kind of generic. How about your prayer? God, lead me not into this temptation that bothers me. Help me make no provision for it today. Help me to avoid the people that cause me a problem with it. Help me to avoid the places that cause me a problem with it. Don't lead me that direction. Let me not go there. The psalmist in 1913 said, Lord, keep your servant from sin. Keep me away from sin today, God. That's a prayer about your problem. Number one, Colossians 3, 2, we've already looked at this. Set your mind on things above. We talked about it in the first sermon this year. It's all in your head. If you haven't heard that, if you weren't here that Sunday, get, get the tape. It was January the 6th. That's where you got to start. You got to set your mind on things above. All right, now let's back up and let's look at our practical plan in full in the right order. Seems bad, but hard backwards, doesn't it? Let's start with number one. Number one, set your mind. Set your mind that we are going to get this field cleared. That's what I'm here for. I'm going to get that field cleared. Okay, number two, pray about it. Every morning, every night, God help me with this. Here's where I want to go. Help me get there. Number three, put God's word in your heart. Find verses particularly about your problem. Read about them. Memorize them. Put them in there. Number four, try to look like your hero in every situation. Would Jesus do this? No. Let me do what he would do. Number five, don't provide an environment for them. Don't feed them. Make no provision for this evil desire to be realized. And number six, see after those first five, number six makes more sense, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you can abstain. All of a sudden, you can stop. All of a sudden, that makes sense if you've been through the first part of the process. And some of you say, well, I hear you talking, but I really want to quit this particular sin, but I just haven't been able to. I just haven't defeated it. Uh, yeah, I've prayed about it, but I just hadn't got rid of it. I say to you, have you tried this particular plan? Have you tried this practical plan consistently. I told you it was guaranteed, but you got to practice it. 
Not just hearing about it. Doesn't do it. You got to do it too. God's, I'm, it's a guarantee. You set your mind that you want to get rid of that sin. You start praying about it. You put the right words in your heart. You start trying to look like Jesus. You start cutting out the provisions for it. And you will abstain from fleshly lusts. And one day you'll wake up and say, <laughs> I hacked it to pieces. I don't have that problem anymore. Guaranteed. A couple of warnings before we quit. Beware. First of all, sin has not been hacked to death when it's merely covered up. Not hacked to death when you just cover it up. Sugar coating it, in fact, covering it up, the Bible says, makes it more dangerous. Psalmist says if you've got one in there that you don't let other people see about, you will not prosper. You will not live the abundant life if you've got one just covered up. Neither is sin hacked to death when it is only internalized. Sometimes we stop the outward things. We stop our mouth, we stop our tongue, we stop our hands from doing. What's the, the problem? That's what the Pharisees did. But they pushed it inside. They still had it inside there. They still thought about it. They still thought about the pleasures of it. They still did all the wrong things internally, but they didn't do it externally. Sin will get you, just like the Amalekites. It's sneaky, it's vicious, it's deceptive, it'll slip up behind you, and it'll pick you off if you don't hack it to pieces. One more warning. Sin is not hacked to death when it is just repressed. Some people do this with sin. Some people just repress it. They can cover it up. Actually, they can kill their conscience, part of the problem, with alcohol with drugs, with entertainment, or today's big answer is just self-esteem. We're taught to just feel good about yourself. Just tell yourself that, yeah, I've got this problem here, but it's really not a problem. I feel good about myself. I'm not going to call it a sin. I'm going to call it a choice. On and on and on, we just repress it as sin. Let me read you a couple of quotes that might disabuse you of that notion. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous theologian, said, If you merely repress a temptation, it will probably come up again more strongly. To that extent, I agree with modern psychologists. Repression is bad. Well, what do you do, someone asks. I answer, when you feel that first motion of sin... Just pull yourself up and say, of course, I am not having any dealings with this at all. Expose the thing. Say, this is evil. This is vileness. This is the thing that drove the first man out of paradise. Pull it out. Look at it. Denounce it. Hate it for what it is. Then you've really dealt with it. You must not merely push it back in a spirit of fear or in a timorous manner, bring it out, expose it, analyze it, then denounce it for what it is until you hate it. Not very modern, is it? think that's bad. Listen to this one. Puritan John Owen, we, st- we were talking about a conscience check. Listen to this one. John Owen said, if you want to kill sin, load your conscience with the guilt of it. Be ashamed. Be greatly ashamed. Listen to your shamed, guilty conscience. 
Boy, that doesn't sound good to our 21st century ears, does it? Sounds horrible. But we're not talking about fun. We're not talking about pleasant. We're talking about living the abundant life. And if you want to live the abundant life, there is hard work involved in clearing the field so that you can have the harvest. All right, all of this may sound like it's all up to you. Paul gives us both sides of the story. Let's look at Philippians 2 as we close. Paul says, work out your salvation. That's kind of what we've been talking about this morning. But Paul gives the rest of the story. For it is God who works in you. We talked about that a lot last week. The Spirit is ready to help if we set our minds and cooperate with Him. And so Paul says, yes, you've got something to do. He's the one that said, put to death, put to death. you got to do that. But the Spirit will help you. You work out your salvation, for it's God who works in you. He's ready to help us. In all the things we talk about, I'm going to keep reminding you of our goal. Don't forget our goal. Our goal is to live an abundant life. That's what we're working on this year. We must do and hear. We've got to do that. Remember this verse from last week. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is a wise man. Don't just hear it today. Take this plan home. Start on it. It's guaranteed. Do it. Also remember that our Savior came for the purpose that we might have a more abundant life. If we do what he says, he's the expert. Let's start with clearing the field of our sin. Now, I know that some of you here, some are ignoring, takes an effort, but some of you are really ignoring everything I've said so far this year. You're stuck. You're stuck in that old miserable second class life or third class life or bottom class life. Because you don't really think that the, the abundant life, that the top level's for you. Jesus said it was. He guaranteed it. He said that's what he came for. There are some, however, who are taking Jesus at his word. If you came for me to have an abundant life, then I'm going to figure out what it takes to have an abundant life. And you're eagerly looking for how to claim that abundant life. Now, we've talked about sin today. So we've heard. Now, what do we do? Well, some of you have a particular sin you need to confess. Some of you got a willful sin in your life, a habitual sin that you haven't gotten rid of. You haven't hacked it to pieces. You need to denounce it. You need to express your hate for it. Some of you might need to do that in front of this family. More of you probably need to do it in front of your physical family. Others of you need to do it in front of your spouse. Say, I've got this sin and I hate it. I denounce it, and I want to hack it to pieces. Once your mind is set, you just work the plan. Set your mind. Begin to pray. Begin to meditate. Do all those things we talk about. And one day, guaranteed, one day you will look around and say, you know, that sin's dead. I hacked it to pieces. I don't really know how. I just followed that simple little plan. But it's defeated because the Spirit will help you defeat it. I encourage you all, us all, to choose to act like Samuel 
Whatever that sin is, let's hack it to pieces. If we can help you as the family of God this morning in this place, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.